Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Dr. Peter Bernstein, who is a research scientist at the Cosmic Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics at the Minor Planet Center. Uh, Minor Planet Center, MPC, is the official worldwide organization in charge of collecting observational data of minor planets, calculating their orbits, computing uh, their trajectories, announcing uh, discoveries, and publishing the data. Welcome, Peter. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me here. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. Our topic today is planetary defense, discovery and characterization of near-Earth objects and possibilities to protect the Earth against the cosmic collisions. So near-Earth objects are things that are sort of flying around closer to us, away from the, um, away from the asteroid belt, right? Um, it's much, much closer to Earth. Indeed, as you may know, most of the asteroids that we ever discovered are really located between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. So basically, at this moment, we have like around one million objects on known orbits between a number of objects that are much close to the Earth, and these objects are called near-Earth objects or near-Earth asteroids. If they are asteroids, not the comets. So currently, we know more than twenty-six thousand of them, and the number is up every single. Um, could you could you repeat that, uh, Peter? You you froze a little bit. Uh, currently, we know how many. Uh, currently, we know twenty six thousand uh, near Earth objects. I would say twenty six thousand and five hundred, and this number is going up every single day. Yeah. So if you look at the demographics of uh, these asteroid type objects, um, so something that is let's say hundred kilometers or higher. It's sort of like a, a minor planet, right? It's, it's a dwarf planet or something like that. So if something like that hit us, that is probably, you don't have to go to the airport the next day. Um, that will probably be, <laughs> be final. Uh, but then uh, dinosaurs got hit by something that is more like 10 kilometers 
in um, in size, right? And that is a real disaster for the entire planet, something at 10 kilometers in size. Yes, correct. So basically objects that are a few kilometers across are uh, um, very rare to impact the Earth. So in terms of like an asteroid killer that killed dinosaurs or large animals like 60 million years ago, uh, that, that frequency is very low. It happens like once per, let's say, 50 million years. So we are more endangered by objects that are much smaller. So I would say we should be more careful about objects that are a few hundred meters across, up to one kilometer, because their frequency is much, much larger in terms of our, our risk Earth impact. And, and also on the other hand, because we know pretty much all the large near-Earth objects, we, it means like we know their orbits, we can predict where they are in the next centuries, we are safe from those. So, Okay, so so something uh, a few kilometers wide, um, the chances are quite low. We already know what they are. They're big enough for us to find. Uh, but it, it is like you say, it's the things like uh, in the tens of meters or hundreds of meters in size that is really problematic. It's they are tough to find, right? That's the issue. Actually, the smaller the object, it must be much closer to the Earth to be detected. So basically, we have a much shorter warning time. And basically, that's the goal of the planetary defense. So I would say that's the easiest part, because one trying to defend us if we find something. So the, the cheapest and most kind of smartest way to do right now is to discover them all. And if you have like the old population, then you are pretty much safe because we are. You go from the largest one because you discover them first and then go slower and slower uh, into the smaller parts of the, of the sizes. So why are the ones, the near-Earth objects, why are they smaller? What is the, what is the mechanism there? So, so basically the distribution follows uh, basically size frequency distribution. It's similar when you take basically a, a pile of dirt or sand from a sand pit, basically each, and you will have a, a small number of those large pebbles, but then you go smaller and smaller for the smaller ones like a sand, you have really, really large quantities. So it's same for the near or asteroids to do how they were formed. So basically at the beginning you had like, I would say thousands or several thousands of large objects, but you had collisions that were happening like billions years ago. They basically destroyed so, so it's a destruction that was happening for the last four and a half billion years that basically grinded objects into smaller pieces. So when, when we are talking about objects that are basically a few meters or fragments of uh, once much larger bodies. Right. Yeah, so as time goes on, they collide with each other, they get, they get smaller, uh, and the, the, the real small ones are all, always falling onto Earth too. We just don't notice them, right? Exactly. So as I mentioned, it's a size frequency distribution. As I mentioned, uh, the smaller the size, the higher frequency because it's, it's much larger. So when we when we go to the really tiny ones, let's talk about one meter in size. You can imagine that's a small thing. It's a comparable to size of a, of a small office desk, right? So these objects basically frequently, I would say like 30 to 40 objects per year. But those are small, so basically only small pieces of them impact the earth of form of meteorites. And you can see them on the sky as, a, as bright fireballs. So that's a spectacular event, but 
they do not pose cancer ever because they, they burn in the atmosphere, most of them. But if we are going to the larger sizes, let's talk about the sizes that we really encountered in the recent history, like the Chelyabinsk event in 2013. It was like only 20 meters in size. See, it's still in the meters. It's not even kilometers when we are talking about the planetary, planetary killers. That frequency is, let's say, once per few decades, once per 50 years. If we go even from like 100 years ago, we are talking about even that is one per hundreds of years. So that's the approximate frequency of, of the collisions with the Earth. So in the last, uh, let's say, few hundred years, what is the largest object that we know of that collided with the Earth? I would say it was the Tunguska event, even though it was a long time ago, so, so basically it was in 1908. And uh, the problem is there was no meteor or impact crater found on the surface, and the expedition that went to the site, which was deeply in Siberia, uh, arrived there many years by anything. So which actually sparked very interesting interest of scientists and geologists to figure out what happened. And they actually concluded that most likely uh, explanation was this of similar to Tunguska, but the blast was much, much larger than in case, case of the of, of the event near Chelyabinsk. So it, it's like you don't even need the object to impact the surface, creating crater, to cause a major damage on the surface. So that's an interesting physical phenomena that's on, on the on the boundary between objects that are too small to cause any damage and much larger to actually impact the surface and creating crater on the surface. And so those explosions that happens in the in the midair uh, is also uh, quite quite damaging. Uh, and so so if I understand this correctly, Peter, the, the smaller ones sort of get vaporized as they fall through. The larger ones have enough mass to actually impact the Earth and somewhere in between there, there are things that gets burned out, uh, but then that process itself is quite damaging from a uh, uh, from the kind of the, um, the buildings and and all of those things, right? When that explosion happens, exactly. When when I need to describe, let's say the the, the blast that uh, reaches the surface of the Earth, it's not just the high winds you have. You have the over overpressure. And also the temperature because of the moment of let's say the explosion that happens in the atmosphere above the sea level uh the, the shock wave basically reaches the surface of the earth so it can have a lot of heat as well not just the wind basically or the the change in the pressure so for instance we have evidence from history that is kind of more in the past like people didn't see it with their eyes, but you could find like places in the desert, like I think in Saudi Arabia and in Africa, in Northern Africa. They found evidence of the molten uh, of, of the surface of the desert, you know, of the silica. So something happened there, something like an explosion basically that caused the of, of the silicates on the surface, and we believe those were the explosions of the meteorites in the atmosphere. So it is believed it was kind of similar in terms of Tunguska, even in Russia, like 100 years ago. So this hit the surface of the Earth. And one of the reasons could be that the object was not made of metal, so it was like a metallic object that would survive the large overpressure. So it was either uh, consisting of, of like, uh, no spark, 
a Carbonell's meteorite, or it was a piece of a comet, possibly. So it was very fragile, but it was still massive. So it's not mostly about the mass. The kinetic energy is proportional to the that causes the kinetic energy to transfer into, let's say, heat or like all explosion. So I would say if we return back only like eight years to the past, to Russia, to Chelyabinsk in 2003, again, the hit the surface of the Earth, basically exploded like 30 kilometers, more than 30 kilometers above the surface. But what caused the damage was the shock wave, was the blast. And more than 1,000 people were actually, there was a lot of damage on the surface. But most of the injuries came from basically the windows and the shattering of the glass. So people saw this phenomena on the sky, which was amazing. All of them went to the window, staring out those. And as they were staring, of course, the shockwave reaches reach, reach the surface and all the glass shatters. So you, you had like hundreds of people uh, going into emergency rooms, which we really from. So they, they basically got from the from the shockwave. So that tells you like it's you don't even need an object hitting the surface. You just need it exploding in the atmosphere. So that's why that was one of the reasons why NASA moved the limit of the dangerous objects from 140 down to probably 30 to 50 meters that we should be be worried worried about. And so um, at Harvard uh, Smithsonian, you have this minor planet center. Um, so what is the definition of a minor planet? Uh, that's a good question, basically. So so minor planet is a very, very broad term. And you can basically understand as minor planets. You can even understand comets as minor planets. And we even classify or have an orbit, have orbits and observations of, of satellites of small out major so matter planet is something that is much smaller than a planet. It is basically smaller than a dwarf planet, but it's still a macroscopic object. It's not like a meteorite. It's not like micrometeorite. So I would say are macroscopic objects, not microscopic objects that you can still observe from the surface of the Earth in space, but are that are smaller than planets. So are they are they spherical in shape? I would say very. Uh, no, not at all. So basically, uh, maybe you remember the, the famous Congress in Prague where, where people were demoted uh, from a planet down to the new new category planets. And one of the categories, uh, one of the criteria was having a spherical shape, which, which Pluto has a spherical shape. That's not a problem. And the spherical shape is basically achieved by the, the total mass of, of the body. Basically, the mass is to, to form the body into the, the form of a sphere because there is some kind of a, a solidified process that can solidify the surface and basically it can melt the, the center, the core of the planet. So you can logically get a sphere. Asteroids are much, much smaller, so they never had enough internal heat to actually form into a, a planet-like body that is spherical. So that's why they often have shapes that are irregular. And especially if we are told they are much, much smaller. If you have an object that is smaller than hundreds of kilometers in size, it, it's usually a piece of debris from, from a past collision that didn't form back into any, any spherical shape. Right. And um, I knew that there was an extrasolar object that came through. Um, I, I can't quite pronounce its name. <laughs> it's like a Hawaiian name. I can. Uh, 
Yeah, and, and so the the shape of that appears very unusual, right? Uh, so we don't see shapes of that 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 type of shape within sort of the uh, within the solar system, right? So so what is the conjecture there? Why do we see something such a long, narrow type object? Uh, you are definitely right. Uh, Oumuamua was the first discoverer interstellar objects or papers before one, one. I was one of the co-authors of one of the papers, like theoretical papers, predicting objects like this will come and we will detect them with telescopes like PANSTARS in Hawaii. That's where I work in. So it was really discovered in 2017 and I was at the MPC where we were basically receiving the first data of an object that suddenly appeared to be on hyperbolic orbit, which was really strongly hyperbolic. And so really, this is in the measurements or really large uncertainties on the positions. It's really on hyperbolic orbit. So maybe that's the first few days of, of the observations of Oumuamua, how we saw it at the moment. But you are, it kind of became apparent that, that the light curve of the objects uh, is, is really um, weird or interesting. So it was changing its brightness so so rapidly in terms of I think in terms of magnitude, which is the measure of, of the brightness of the stars or cosmic but it's more it was more than two magnitudes. So it was apparent there is a big difference between the long and the short axis of the body. So usually this is you determine how elongated are the asteroids. As I mentioned, asteroids are not spherical, they are often have, having shapes like elongated shapes. Or, or even shapes of a dog bone or some shards of, of, of former body. From the light curve, from the light you see, from the light curves, you can kind of reconstruct the shape. Or, or roughly, you can even easily say, like, it's elongated to this extent. This is the kind of eccentricity of the ellipse. So it, you can fit the shape. But for Oumuamua, it was so extreme, it's the object is 10 times as longer than wider. So that kind that's kind of uh, gave impression to artists who draw Oumuamua. First idea, this is basically a very elongated ellipsoid, which it was really difficult to imagine how this even formed, right? Like what kind of process, what kind of collision? It's basically almost impossible to the collision in the solar system. Uh, why why these objects look like that? But the problem we have even until nowadays is that basically it's only derived shape. So we re really don't know how it looks like. And there, there is a sec second form how it could look like. So it's not like an ellipsoid, it could be a disc. So basically it can be an object that looks like a flat pancake. So it's here a long cigar, it's kind of a flat pancake. That's all you can say based on the light curves we have. And it's also worth mentioning, we only saw it for a very short time. It was observed only for two months. And then it was just too far. It was the largest telescope. So we only had a very short time to look at it. Yeah, there was some speculation, and I think uh, this, this is continuing, that it was an extraterrestrial um, uh, vehicle of some sort, uh, taking, a, <laughs> taking a few pictures. Um, well, what is the what is the status on that? Uh, has that conjecture been rejected, or there is something to it? There are so many this object, even though it was observed so so shortly, and we didn't have uh, that much data, unfortunately, on it. Uh, I think the the SETI Institute even pointed the radio telescope 
this object to um, if there is transmission going on, but there was nothing. So that's negative from at least this point of view. But in terms of, of the of the theories we have, uh, I, I, I most like the theories that are kind of nations toward using physics. And the latest one I, I basically read was about trying to explain it as, as an object that was made of ice. I think the last was like the nitrogen ice. You could have a kind of analog in the solar system. You can take take a look uh, at the surface of which is a surface that is made of nitrogen uh, ices. Then they need to be really at the very cold temperatures under minus 200 degrees, basically Celsius to stay in the solid state. So perhaps it was a shard of, of a minor planet in another solar system that is far, far away. That was similar like Pluto very far from its, from its parent. And this piece of ice was just traveling through through the space for billions of years and slowly because of the bombardment of the cosmic particles its shape changed to this elongated form and a solar system uh, it is even expected that the shape became even more extreme and even lost some part of its mass while it was flowing through the solar system and one of the mystery was we didn't see any activity because the first it's a comet its motion was not really following the Keplerian motion, like you know the basic three Keplerian laws and just just a Newtonian motion around the sun. It was accelerating, and we have experience from the sun. Comets are objects that are accelerating because they have gases escaping their surfaces, and you can compute basically like the three three components of the velocity that is basically increase the velocity of the comet because you could actually see it. You could see the activity, you could see the comma, you could see the tail. So you can compute the amount of mass that is escaping the surface. Not just in in the form of, of like CO, CO2 vapor, but also the dust you see. It's a mass that is really escaping the comet surface. But in case of Oumuamua, you could see, you could describe there is some kind of uh, acceleration, but there is no evidence of any activity whatsoever. So it was moving irrational and you didn't. So that's why I like the theory about the nitrogen gas. Because for nitrogen, uh, I wouldn't say even evaporating, it's basically the solid state, state turning into, into gas instantaneously in the solar system. You wouldn't see it in those amounts because that object was small. It was probably 20, 30 times 100 or 200 meter size object. So that's one of the plausible theories that, that look reasonable to me at this point. So, so from a planetary defense perspective, you are cataloging all these near-Earth objects. Uh, we are getting a better and better understanding of how many are there. Um, we still don't have a full picture. Um, but from a risk perspective, these types of objects, um, they, they're going to be uh, highly infrequent, I would imagine. They, they don't really pose a threat, right? Oh, of course, exactly. So basically, every year, like let's say, or previous covering thousand near objects per year. So that's that's the number, and that's that's only possible because of the activities that uh, most of the United States are uh, doing uh, in terms of planetary defense, and for observation, really are specialized in searching for these objects. And all of these objects that we know pose no threat to Earth because number one, we know their orbits mostly very well, but of course the orbits 
but once the object is discovered, uh, discovery means you see it for the first time, but then you follow it up for a few days, at least for a few days, to have an idea what what it's, uh, the orbit looks like. So in that way, you can predict where this object will be in a year, 10 years, 100 years from now. So you could see immediately after a few days, this is not a threat for the Earth. So you have the orbit, you have designation for an object, so that object will start to exist for the entire world and community. And the Minor Planet Center is basically an institution that that gives these these observations and orbits freely public. It's not kept so immediately after object is discovered, it's out publicly. So not just the scientists, but people around the world can go to our website and just get the information about every single object. So and we observe them. So I always say the danger is currently coming from objects we don't know. So we, we can know from the frequency of discoveries as a, as a function of size, how many objects we discovered in a, in a given size range. So when we go back to the near-red objects, as I mentioned, uh, there are many, many small ones, but the numbers of the large ones are small. So currently about 1,000 objects near the Earth in the near-Earth space, they are larger than one kilometers in size. And we know about 95% of them. And that was one of the original mandate of the U.S. Congress to NASA eight that NASA should really find like all of these large objects in the next decade. And they really did it. So basically uh, in a 10 years, in 2008, we could say like 90 objects larger than 1 km in the near Earth space. Are so in 2008, the NASA's mandate changed, and so they were told, okay, you were really uh, doing a great job in finding these large objects. Let's focus on the smaller ones. Let's focus on objects larger than 140 meters. Let's find these uh, in the next 10 years. And basically what happened now is 2021, 2008 was, uh, 2018, it was like 10 years after the deadline. We are still only at 40%. So for the objects larger than 140 meters in size, we are still not knowing about 60% of them. So that's where the danger is coming from. So, so objects greater than 140 meters, um, even at that size, uh, they they could they could take out a city, right? Potentially, if if uh, it falls to a city. Uh, that's that's correct, and that's one of the reasons of these new missions that are visiting asteroids, nearer asteroids like Osiris Rex or Hayabusa 2, are going to objects regime. So, asteroid Bennu or Yugu have like 700 meters in size, and in, in the similar size regime is the asteroids that is going to visit it uh, next year by the DART mission, the planetary. Objects from close from the spacecraft, how they really look like, what, what is their physics, because those are the objects that could pose the threat to Earth. But I have to also mention that statistically, it's still a pretty low chance that size of the Earth right in the next 10,000. So we will be really unlucky if that happens. But it's it's better to be safe than sorry, and just just it's much better to discover them just with the tussle them for a few days or weeks. And you could be basically safe forever, for those you know. Yeah, so if something comes closer to us, uh, what is sort of the status quo 
uh, technologies and thoughts in terms of diverting it or, or eliminating the threat? What, what are the things that one could do? So that's a good question. It's one of the things that the planetary defense conference did well. It's a of the community that is happening every two years and it basically gathers scientists that are not just observing the asteroids but also preparing missions that will eventually hopefully save us from the this conference every every two years there is a simulation of impacts and so basically uh, the jpl people at the center for neo studies prepare an impact that is totally day of a conference, they, they progress the situation. They simulate, like, just imagine that this year you discover an object that is going to hit the Earth in 10 years from now. But you only have the first few days of the... And you basically uncertainty is very large. So that object would still kind of pass around the Earth. So you don't know. And and as the time progresses, they simulate and more data is coming to the Earth, not just observational, but... And you are becoming more certain that object is going to hit the earth and you can even define a, an area on the surface of the earth where it is going to hit so you can nail down the area that will be impacted and then what the community is doing they are trying to plan let's say rescue efforts like what kind of a space mission can you uh, prepare to, to save the earth so currently the best kind of simulated scenario is to use so-called kinetic impactors to hit the earth, but you still need like many 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 years before the impact to change the orbit of the object really by a very small fraction to change the directory in a way like the object won't hit the earth 10 years let's say in the future so that that's uh, but i also have to stretch out like uh, we still will need to have like 10 or 15 years at least time to prepare such a mission and be sure the object is going to hit the earth and where and how so it's not easy i think that and these conferences, we are getting closer to the realization if such a thing will happen. So kinetic impactor. So this is some sort of a massive aircraft um, sent over to to essentially impact the object. The 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 change we need to effect is very small, right? Uh, especially if you have three years of time uh, between the object and, and the Earth. So it, the, the, the change we need to effect is very small. But it's still sort of mind-boggling that you can send a, an aircraft of some size to, to actually change an asteroid's path. Um, so, so what is sort of the what is the mass of this impactor? Uh, you know, what would be sort of the range of the mass that you're thinking about? So basically, you can imagine it as a spacecraft. So basically, it's like a mission, taking a sample or landing or just flying by around. You just need to hit it pretty much. So it's not really important to have like massive amounts of instruments on its surface to do any research. So the idea is as possible spacecraft that will hit the surface basically face on at the highest velocity possible. So it's not much about the mass, it's about the velocity more. As I mentioned, kinetic energy is proportional to the velocity. Which did properly at, at the given time and change the velocity of, of an asteroid a little bit. And the reason why this is a small amount is because the mass of an asteroid is definitely much, much, much larger order of spacecraft it could hit it. So if we are talking about spacecraft, it's it's probably only a few tons. So that's a, that's a tiny spacecraft. You can compare it to the school bus, let's say, right? 
and that will lead the mass. And the change is small in the orbit at the moment of impact, but uh, that change will change over, let's say, a decade. And it could be enough. It will it will basically go around the Earth very closely, very nearby, but uh, it won't hit the Earth. That's the kinetic impactor. And if we are in a need, we could have like two, three, or four kinetic impactors to, to hit the asteroid and change its orbit. But it's, it's very difficult in a sense, like in the simulations, the problem is that um, the small could be such a small change in the velocity of the asteroid. You, you are not even sure if it, if it was enough, you know, to change its orbit because you don't even know what changed. You would know in a year or two or and then you are getting closer and closer to the impact, potential impact. And if, if you imagine Earth flying in the space, you can basically draw around it, right? Target represents the size of the uncertainty. And the target is usually much larger than the Earth itself. So what we are trying to achieve in, in uh, asteroid collision avoidance is to move not about shrinking the target down, because if you are unlucky, you will just shrink it down onto the surface of the Earth, and it, it will basically become like 100% certain like it's going to hit the Earth. You just need to move that. So, so that's the purpose of the kinetic impactor. Um, I know that there are some ideas, uh, lasers or um, sun energy to to sort of ablate away part of the uh, part of the object. Uh, is that is that technically feasible? Is is it um, is it a possibility? So there are definitely other options, but from the current standpoint of our technological advances, I think impactable because. All, all the solar solutions and lasers seem very nice and probably look like from like from a science fiction movie and could do something, but I am not sure if we have this maybe 30 years from now. It's, it's all the same like we are talking about uh, asteroid mining and space resources. Like we still don't have the technology. It, it may be a, an option like 30 for now, now, just imagine we have like 10 or 20 years. If an object such like that is discovered, we can probably forget about any lasers. Yeah, so kinetic impactor is sort of the more, more mature technology that we have, but that requires for us to identify uh, the object early enough, right? For, for that. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's fine. Mm -hmm. yeah, so that's my number is actually our devices. Even though that option is not very popular in, in the sense of the United Nations and cooperation of other nations, because in defense, this is not just the case for a single country to deal with. It's, it's basically the case for entire world to do something together, because uh, there are at least several nations around the world that are capable of launch spacecraft and, and do something collision that may happen. So like like nuclear explosion uh, that should not like be implanted on the surface, but be like nearby of an asteroid could be enough not to destroy an asteroid, but again, I will stress out changing its orbit. Gently. So this is uh, sending a nuclear bomb and you explode it close to the asteroid. So the shock wave basically pushes it a little bit, right? Um, so, uh, but you have to... Yeah, well, it, it's yeah. a shock wave. It's not really about the shock wave. If it's about the energy to get kind of deposited on the surface of an asteroid, so maybe you will evaporate a portion of the surface. 
but the energy will you know, from the surface kind of kind of bounce back so it will create a little push from from the surface so it's it, the goal is not to destroy it with the explosion the goal is kind of to change it the direction and danger for for the explosion that will cause like disruption into multiple pieces you don't know what will be the outcome of such an explosion so if you are unlucky you will just break it into two or three parts and all of them will hit this we could if uh, asteroid is hitting the earth so so what would be sort of the horizon peter that that you would consider to be sort of a near miss um clearly you don't want it to come through the atmosphere you want it far away from the atmosphere so what is the what is the diameter that you you would want it you know kind of a safety perspective to, to miss the target So basically, that that depends on the asteroid and the velocity itself. So the mean velocity is basically should be at least 1.4 radius. So it should be at least like half half radius uh, of the Earth. Of course, that number is it's basically velocity of asteroids because in, in the celestial dynamics, if the asteroid is going around the Earth, the Earth is going to attract the asteroid even closer to it to the surface of the Earth. So we need to be sure to account. Of so that's why we are talking about safe miss. So as also in the terms of the of the objects moving in space, you always have some kind of uncertainty around this position. It could get in into sort of a orbit of around the too, Yes, yeah. So you need to be certain in a way like uh, you need to take into account also the uncertainty, like to be outside of the Earth plus the uncertainty to be certain that this is not going to hit us. Right. Yeah, I, I have seen some uh, speculation that you could actually put that into an orbit around the Earth and, and then you can mine it. <laughs> is, is that a possibility? Uh, that's really difficult to imagine. And one <laughs> of the reasons is that asteroids are really kind of flying around the Earth all the time, around very close. I mean, we have definitely dozens of uh, close encounters uh, closer than the orbit of the moon like every single year but those kind of encounters are pretty large velocity if you compare it to the earth itself so it's kind of improbable you can slow the asteroid down and kind of bring it to the orbit of the earth but that is a special special case of objects uh, i can mention those are minimum so tend to have orbits that are very similar to the orbit of the Earth, and they can naturally get around the orbit of the Earth at least for a small time. It means like for a weeks, for weeks or months. So they kind of appear as a, as a, sub, a satellite for a few months. So those objects are definitely the easiest for, for accessibility from the Earth by spacecraft or mining. Unfortunately, the probability probability mostly we are talking about objects that are like a few meters in size so it's like some object that is like one two three meters in size that that is around the earth maybe at any given time and i know that there are a couple of objects that people are worried about uh, one uh, sort of in 2028 but what is the dimension of that that one that uh, sort of worry, worrying <laughs> It's getting closer to us. Uh, what, is, what is the name? Can you remind uh, me that? You know, in 20, uh, I, I, I believe that in 2028, 
Um, oh, <laughs> I. Yes. So uh, it should be probably asteroid Apophis that was kind of uh, in the media quite often. And the idea was 29. It's supposed to have a very uh, near approach around the Earth. And in 2020, 2036, uh, there was a prediction that it could hit the Earth. Of course, the impact probability was very small in 36, but it kind of depended on the close approach in 2029, how it will go in uh, seven years later. And I think thanks to this Apophis, the community got a really large boost and the research probability and uh, the, the Earth, the protection of the Earth became, became more apparent. So I think this, we can thank to discovery of this object that the community got uh, much stronger and the interest went about how to protect the Earth. And basically we are safe from this asteroid, we can say, at least for the next 200 years, because we added so many more observations of this object, not just from the surface of the Earth, from, from Tobes, from the radio telescope. We improved the orbit so much that we know it won't hit the Earth in 2036. So when it goes past uh, the Earth, it, it could go past the sun and essentially come back. So, so the, yes. the, the, the possibility there is on the return path that it could come closer or, or could hit, right? That's the issue. Exactly, are also uh, kind of an orbits that kind of return back regularly. And this is the case of Apophis exactly. So they have resonant orbit, so they go to back uh, every two or three revolutions. So I would say lucky or unlucky at the same time that this object is going to go close to the Earth all the time, because number one, those orbits intersect basically at a pretty pretty same part of, of the space. But on the other hand, you can have like intersect, but those object, objects can never meet, right? Like statistically. But the object like Apophis will just go where the Earth is in that intersection, <laughs> uh, like quite quite often, like statistically. So unlucky that we are going to meet this asteroid pretty often. And from the perspective of uh, of the impact on, on the Earth, uh, scientists kind of uh, discovered so-called keyholes and like space. If the asteroid goes through these keyholes, let's say in 2029, it will mean that it will hit the Earth in 2036. So they kind of figure out the, the, uh, the impact is such a such a simple thing to calculate because uh, because of the uncertainties you have on on the orbit and the position of the object, they kind of predicted they basically mapped uh, the area around the, the Earth. Like if the asteroid goes exactly around this place. 29, it will hit in 2010. In 2036, it will go again very close around the Earth. So again, there will be some keyholes around. If it goes through these keyholes, it will hit again in like 30 years later. So that's why we need to know the position of objects like this very accurately. So, so I'm pretty sure this this object will be on on the media and radar uh, for some time. Yeah, one thing I, I don't quite understand is so when, when it goes um, close to the Earth on the way toward the sun, um, as it goes around, wouldn't it lose a lot of material? So the the it won't lose material? Okay. No, not at all. So that's the difference between asteroids and comets. So you can basically imagine asteroid being a piece of rock, a solid, solid body. And 
you are right. I mean, it may go closer to the sun uh, as the Earth goes, so the temperature on the surface can go up. But even like 50 or 100 degrees in 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 the open space in the vacuum is not enough to evaporate any any substantial or any macroscopic matter from its surface. So it's only the comets they significantly lose a portion of the surface. Like from a typical comet, it, it looks basically it loses every single. Uh, revolution around the sun, like dozens of meters of its surface, it really goes away from a comet because it's mostly ices like, uh, and dust that goes away, like asteroids are rock solid. So, so we can be reasonably certain if it goes through the keyhole on the return back, it is going to hit us. But that is, that is sort of a seven-year sort of horizon, right? Um, that, yeah. that impact would happen. Mm -hmm. So I guess during that time you can do something, <laughs> uh, perhaps. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I, like we, we are really we are really safe from Apophis. It's not going to have any any keyhole in 2029. So we are safe in 2036 from Apophis. Yeah, yeah. So so I want to finish up with one of your papers: uh, statistical analysis of uh, astrometric errors for the most productive asteroid surveys. Um, so you say we performed a statistical analysis of the ast astrometric errors for the major asteroid surveys. Um, so what what are the errors we're talking about here? Uh, it is sort of the precision uh, of uh, what we're computing. It, exactly. So basically, an asteroid, uh, the asteroid is moving and the stars are not moving in your telescope. So when your telescope is pointed on, on the sky, so basically you are simulating the motion of the Earth. So basically you see the stars that in your image and the object is moving in the solar system because it goes around the sun. And you measure the position of the asteroid with respect to the stars. So you have the coordinates in terms of right ascension and declination. It's very similar. You Maybe during the high school, you measure something on a paper, you have a position in X and Y, but you can always provide what is the uncertainty on your, of your measurement. And it's usually given with your rule, right? Like it, it only has like inches, so position is accurate to this degree, right? That's that's your measurement. So, so basically what observers do, they provide to us not just the position on the sky, sometimes they provide to us the uncertainty on their measurement. But the problem is, is back, there was no information on the uncertainties whatsoever, so they just sent positions to us, right? So this is our position on the sky, right? Ascension or declination, you can information on uncertainty. So you could still kind of derive the orbit and basically how the orbit fits the data that gave you the deltas on, on the position of right ascension and declination. And, and information you see like surveys that use that use larger telescopes with longer focal length had naturally much smaller errors on the measurements or telescope that were smaller and had large pixel cameras larger errors and you could discover things like some telescope had issues with time right so they were reporting time to us with with an error of one or five seconds so you could see that in the data Right, or they, they they were measuring objects that were near the Earth, like near Earth objects, and if they move uh, in your image and, and and your exposure time is longer, instead of the points per function image, like you know, the asteroid looks like the star that moves, you have a basically because in like few minutes of an exposure, it makes a line on a screen, and basically, uh, astronomers 
customers usually had during that line. So they had much larger error that was along the track with respect to across the track. So, so what we did in our paper, we basically measured after fitting the orbits of all the asteroids through the data, like what are the errors for the most productive asteroids? Uh, because MPC is our minor planet center has a list of 2,300 observatories around the Earth, like all around the Earth, including observatories. So we could assign like what is a typical error measurement error for every single observatory of course every or some of them we even kind of splitted those errors as a function of time because some observatories are functioning for decades you could see in the data like 90 the 1990 they started to using the ccd camera in 2020 they probably changed the camera for a newer camera you can see data if you know the uncertainties you can kind of you know turn the knob of the orbit fitting like, okay, so you can evade this data more because they are more important. They are definitely accurate. And, and these data from these sites, other astronomers, or maybe from some older survey that had some issues, you can kind of downweight when you are computing the orbits. And that, that this is very important for especially things like, uh, you know, uh, um, Earth and uh, frequency and stuff like that. Especially even an object is maybe going to hit the Earth, it, it's very very important to know like what is the uncertainty or on the orbit and also understand the uncertainty. So you get up from the numbers that were provided to us and what we can say back about the data. So so basically, uh, maybe to kind of conclude, what was the conclusion of my paper? It was basically the for a given observatory site in right ascension and declination. So it was kind of a waiting scheme that uh, people are using, I think now around the world for, from, from my paper. If there are orbits, the data from the minor planet center, uh, they, can, they can weight the data according to the waiting scheme I created in that paper. Hmm. So as, as more data, uh, as we collect more data, we can sort of look at cross-sectionally and, and get some better idea of accuracy and, and errors and position. So, so in conclusion, Peter, uh, dinosaurs unfortunately did not have telescopes. Um, we, we, we seem to have better, <laughs> better equipment, uh, but we are not completely there yet. Um, we still haven't really cataloged all the near-Earth objects. Uh, we seem to know all the big things out there. That is, um, that's pretty good. Uh, and technology, we talked about the kinetic impact as as possibly the only mature technology we could deploy if something comes closer. Um, what is the horizon you think? How many years do we need? Uh, I, I, I'm just asking you to speculate. How many years, how many decades would we need to be sort of in a position to say, uh, whatever happens, we either have a technology to divert it, uh, we have cataloged everything that might come closer, we will have sufficient time to, to react. What would be what would be that time you think that uh, that we need? So that's an excellent question because uh, again, results from from these questions in one of my papers. So so basically, uh, one part of my work was to simulate the new telescope being built in it, its original name was LSST, a large synoptic survey telescope. It was now renamed to Vera Rubin Observatory. It's a giant telescope. It has an eight meter size mirror and its goal is to scan 
Kepler sky. I mean, there are larger telescopes around the world, like Keck with 10 meter size, Grand Canaria 11 meter size. But this telescope is not going to observe one single object for many hours. It's just going to scan entire sky. And of course, its primary mission is dark. Uh, it will also provide data on the minor planets of the solar system. So my goal uh, in this work was to kind of compute how many of these near-Earth objects uh, we are we going to discover with this large and telescope. It will be a lot. It will significantly help, help us in achieve this goal. So if we don't have this telescope, it will take more than 10 years to, to get closer to that 90% goal of finding objects larger than 140 meters. We probably 10 years our original schedule, because right now we are at 40%. And again, I have to mention these are objects larger than 140 meters. I'm not talking about smaller objects. But that's all. So stay tuned. This telescope is here. So fingers crossed, like for LSST, and now called Vera Rubin Observatory. And that's not all. NASA also invested a lot of funds and money into the new space telescope that is called Anyosurvey uh, or Near Earth, which is a new infrared telescope that should go to space, hopefully in the next three or four years. So together with LSST, Vera Rubin, the NeoSurvey mission, we will kind of work in a tandem, uh, like Vera looking in the sky at night toward the opposition, and the space telescope, the NEOSM, looking kind of toward the morning and evening parts of the sky. So together, they can achieve this goal in probably So fingers crossed for these two missions that, that are basically the key missions for the future near-Earth uh, object discoveries. Yeah, so a few decades, uh, it sounds like, uh, I guess, detection and cataloging getting closer and closer to 100% is the key, right? So yes. if you have sufficient time, then you could do something about it. If you have sufficient time, that, that is really the key, isn't it? Yes, hopefully, hopefully, I would say until 2030, we have like 90% objects cataloged larger than 100 meters. And, and of course, we have other projects uh, I only talk kind of expensive, like a space telescope and a giant Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile. But there is another project that is ongoing for a few years already in Hawaii that is called Atlas, which is a totally opposite telescope. It's like, wow, a small telescope is only 50 centimeters in size, is mirror. So it's a, it's a telescope that maybe some amateur astronomers have in their backyards in terms of size. But of course, the point is not, it's not that simple. The large field of view, it scans entire sky. It's on, in, it's on great location. It's on Hawaii, so it has excellent sky conditions, very dark. And it's not all. So they have a pair of telescopes there. They have pairs of telescopes there in uh, South Africa, pairs of telescopes also in, in Chile. Australia. So the, the plan for the small telescope is to see those objects are going to impact the Earth and and post imminent impact. Like you have one, two or three weeks before the impact. It's for the small objects, like objects are like 10, 20, 30 meters in size. So for those, maybe not even the large telescope, like space telescopes are not going to discover all like years. But with the small telescopes like Atlas, you can see them one, two or three weeks before the impacts. These objects do not really pose a threat in a sense like they are going to destroy the continent. They're not going to hurt. They can destroy a city, like in terms of like Chelyabinsk, right? But if you see them one or two weeks before impact, that's plenty of time for us to give us exact information. They are going to impact this location. 
evacuate the people from that area and prepare for that impact. So that's also a very important part. Yeah, you said I know that there are a lot of amateur astronomers looking for these objects too. Is there some sort of a network of of amateur astronomers and you know some sort of web based cataloging going on of these objects? In, indeed, it is. So even even when you look at the discoveries the last two decades, like like professionals really took like the 95% all the discoveries. I have to mention is a lot of funds, especially from NASA and large telescopes, that are working in this field. The minor base of 2,300 observatories. Many of them of them historical. They don't work anymore. But but most of these observatories are amateur astronomers. So sometimes they they really contribute discoveries because it's difficult to compete with these large telescopes, but they are very valuable in follow-up, let's say. So because I, I tend to say there is no discovery without follow-up, because when you see the object for the first time, just the first, you know, four positions, you all know, and that's all you can say about the object. You don't know the orbit. You don't even know it's a near object. You don't know anything. So that's why you need more data. You need the second, third, fourth, and fifth night. That maybe sounds some kind of a boring activity for professionals. So I would say amateur astronomers are really important in providing follow-up, and sometimes they are looking in places where professionals are not looking. So I would say amateur astronomers are still quite important. Individuals telescope at great sites, let's say on Southern Hemisphere or in Australia, in some dark places. And very valuable parts of the sky are, as I mentioned, when you look from the southern hemisphere, or if you at, at like uh, after sunset or before sunrise at the dawn or dusk, because the sky is not dark enough. So large telescopes don't even start operations because they say like it's not really worth to start. So eating sun, but that's where the amateur astronomers are looking at. They still discover comets, let's say, in that area of the sky. They can discover interesting objects like objects that are in the inside of the Earth's orbit. And I would say recently there is one new network of commercial telescopes called uh, Unistellar. They, they have a, a digital telescope on market that people purchased. I think they sold several thousands and they paints for the people who can just bring the telescope outdoors and on the computer or basically on your cell phone or, or tablet. You just type a name of the object if there is a campaign and the same automatically pointed out to that object and data can be sent to the minor planet center. So I would also say it's not just the professionals, but we also rely on amateur astronomers. And I think for amateur astronomers, it's still still an art of, of the research, but fun activities because you, because you can still discover your own object, your own, your own asteroids, your, your own comet. So I think it's still amazing, right? If, if you are such a person having a small telescope, it's 2021. Yeah, it seems like a it's sort of a crowdsourcing data, and it seems like it's in the a few tens of meters um, size objects, right? They they're not going to create worldwide uh, problems, but they could still be quite catastrophic for. Uh, if it falls in the water, it could be tsunami and, you know, those types of things, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a huge exactly. opportunity for crowdsourcing, yeah. Yeah, 
I would also add another maybe information. So we were talking only about like telescopic observations, like you are an amateur astronomer here who has a small with the camera. But what is also kind of interesting, recently in the last, let's say, five or ten years, professional surveys started to uh, uh, they start publish their data, large archives in terms of images. It's a vast quantity of large CCD images they put online. It, it's not just for the scientists who can really go back and just uh, you know save data. Amateur astronomers who are doing archival discoveries. Because often in the past, like 10 or 15 years ago, even nowadays, most of the of the discoveries done in those large surveys is done automatically. It's a computer that images and finds moving targets. But you know, software is is still not on the level of the human eye. Because of course those amateurs often spend hours just looking on the images and thinking, looking and they are pretty sure that 100 objects they see moving, they were already reported, so there is no point of reporting them. And suddenly they see this very faint streak going through the images. And we're going past to from years ago, and we'll tell them, yes, it's an unknown object. It was never reported from this large telescope. So amateur astronomers are not just observing fresh, they can go back to archives, and they are submitting years ago large surveys because the surveys made the data public so they can even make discoveries of objects that were observed years ago and if not discoveries they can they can extend the arc of the object that was having discoveries since 2000 let's say but they can extend the arc many years back which makes the orbit more, more accurate so those are examples like how ordinary people can go and make discoveries they don't have yeah Excellent. Excellent, Peter. This has been great. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Oh, thank you very much for having me here. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.